Welcome to the Track and Field Black History Podcast. My name is Anderson, and today we'll be having a conversation with Antonio McKay, a legend in 400-meter running. And just a quick rundown of his accolades to really explain why he's a legend. He's a two-time Olympic gold medalist in the 4x4, two-time world indoor champion in the 400, 400-meter 400 Olympic bronze medalist, 4x400-meter world indoor silver medalist, 4x4 world outdoor gold, and also held the world record in the indoor 440 yard dash. Antonio McKay, thank you so much for joining us today. I'm glad to be here. Thank you for inviting me. Wonderful. So just to jump in, I want to start off with your time in Atlanta. And I know this is, of course, where you were born, where you grew up, and still where you currently reside. But curious what it was like growing up in Atlanta and what got you into track and field initially? You know, I started out more football. You know, I went to Georgia Tech on a football scholarship. But when I was 13, you know, I grew up in like the project. It was a little rough. We always competed in the projects, running in the street to beat each other. And when I was 13, I started to beat the guys that were 17 years old. And so I always knew I was pretty fast. Uh, when I got to high school, I won the state in the 400, my ninth, 10th, and 11th, 12th grade year. Uh, get, when I got to Georgia Tech, I told my ligament in my knee and I went strictly track from there. But my history growing up was always rough. So, you know, and so I always thought track was one of the hardest sports to be into, be an individual runner. And I just loved to compete. And so just giving up football and sticking to track was one of the biggest things I ever done and setting world records, my first race in college and uh, running the 400. So growing up in that background with a single parent, just my mom, and just my sister, uh, I just love to compete. Nice, nice. And I like that you noted that um, the where you grew up, you grew up in the projects and that experience of just running the streets and things like that. Um, so currently, Atlanta is really known as, you know, kind of one of the premier cities for the Black community, right? You have so many Black people coming from all around the country to Atlanta to start up businesses, to, um, to start their professional careers. Um, what was that, what is that like for you back then compared to what we kind of know of as Atlanta now, um, some of the struggles that you faced um, compared to now in Atlanta? You know, I think when I grew up, you know, it was tough, uh, but we had more people that stick together. I think it's actually even rougher now. People don't see that. They think they can come to Atlanta. so much competition, not just with black and white and people that come from different countries. But when I grew up, there was more opportunities, I think, then as now it's, it's really tough. So people come to Atlanta and they think that the South is the place to be. You know, I don't know, I love Atlanta, don't get it wrong. I, it's a place that I love to live at, but it's, it's tough, you know, for black people today, you know, it's so much competition and we fight against each other. I welcome people to come to Atlanta, but it's not what people think it is. It's like cut though, you know, black on black competing. Um, so I, I think it's better then than now. I think it was better then. Wow, that, that's really interesting. And that's a great perspective to hear from, you know, again, this is, we're talking 20, 30, you know, almost 40 years ago, your experience in Atlanta compared to now. Um, and then of course you mentioned you went to Georgia Tech, you were one of the, and still to this day, one of the premier athletes uh, to go through Georgia Tech. Um, what brought you to Georgia Tech out of the many colleges in Atlanta? What was it that kind of enticed you to go to Georgia Tech? You know, my mom was at the, she worked at the Student Baptist Center at Georgia Tech. And, and so I grew up on the Techwood campus. My, and my, my grandmother lived in Techwood, which was a project too, that was right there. So, 
ever since I was 12 years old, I was always in that area. It was between Tennessee and Georgia Tech. And, you know, Georgia Tech didn't have a great track program. It, it didn't really matter to me, did they have a good program? Did it fit me? You know, at that time, Coach Buddy Folks, who just passed, was my coach. I just wanted to go to a place that I thought that was someone cared about me, you know, and coming from not growing up with a father, I, I bonded to a white male at that time, you know, and all our role models sort of growing up other than the Martin Luther King or Malcolm X, those people I looked up to, we didn't have any role model other than my grandfather being black and serving in the service. So I was just looking for a male that can guide me. And so that's helped me choose Georgia Tech. And of course you noted that um, within, you know, one of your, I actually didn't know that was your first race, but um, you set a world record very early on. It was like January of 1984, I think. Um, what was that like, you know, stepping onto the track for the first time, you know, at Georgia Tech, starting off the year and setting a world record? Did you think that you were going to be able to do something like that? And was that motivation entering the 1984? Yeah, I, I predict that I would set the world record. At that time, you know, you don't know. When you saw the stupid, I call it stupid, naive, great things can happen. You know, you get on the track and you just think you can do anything, you know, and so getting on the track, I, I remember Stanley Blaylock, he grew up in Atlanta too, and he went to the University of Georgia, and we were competing. You know, I never really see myself losing in any race, you know, not until the race is over. So setting a world record to me is like, um, you know, you went in in high school, you come out of high school running 45, you know, 80 something. So you think the world record indoors was 46, two or 45. Well, why not break it? You, you, you don't understand that's an indoor track. So you thinking, oh, I can beat that time. But it, that's how I competed my whole life, always thinking I can win, always trying to break records, always trying to do something that someone never done before. That's amazing. And I like that that motivation. I know a lot of athletes will come out of high school, even if they're really good, they might go into college feeling kind of intimidated. But like what you said, I think that motivation and that mindset of feeling like, yes, I, I am capable, right? I can actually win these races. I think that's definitely a good mindset. And I, I like to hear that. Um, and then, of course, going into outdoors, you you followed up, you won indoors in the NCAA, you followed up, you won outdoors in the NCAA. Um, I even read that you, you know, you didn't even run that many races outdoor. Am, am I correct that you didn't run too many races outdoors during? And, and I, I did not. I think I ran maybe five or six races outdoors. But, you know, you're coming in, you're 19 years old, you run an indoor season, you, you win the NCAAs indoors, you run an outdoor season, you run the NCAAs outdoors. Then you go into the Olympic trials, you win the Olympic trials, you think you're invisible, that's a lot of races. And then you go through the first two rounds, you know, you're thinking you can't lose a round and you go in your semis, you run 44, 69. And so you go into these races, not really understanding track and field at that time. So to me, it was a lot of races. And to me, when I got to the final, my last race, you know, I was done. You know, what I mean done, it was all I had. I PR'd out of lane one. I ran a great time. I was defeated by a great athlete. So to me, it was a long season. And then kind of uh, backtracking a little bit, you spoke about kind of the role models that you did have in your life, um, you know, especially coming from the projects in Atlanta um, and going into Georgia Tech. How did you and how did you lean on those role models and how did you, you know, maybe take some advice as you did navigate your first kind of real year on the track going through NCAA, going into the Olympics and things like that? You know, I'm a big believer in history. You know, you watch the guys from 68, you know, Mexico, those guys, you know, Bob Beeman, Lee Evans, all those guys, you know, they put the hand up, they represented something. 
you know, we don't represent very much anymore. To me, those guys are heroes, you know, and so me to see people be able to go and compete and not be respected by your country at that time and people serve in the military. I was a big military person that believed in people that, you know, protected our country. So compete for me and representing the United States meant everything to me. And so that was very easy then to find role models that fit that, the service guys, um, Martin Luther King, uh, you know, more the peace role, but more Malcolm X, more of an eye for an eye. You know, I think that we live in a time now we don't understand that sometimes violence get things done. We may not agree with that, but those heroes that sacrifice their life for us, I'm running track, it's easy. That, that's beautiful to hear. And, um, you know, I know you're coming in, you know, from the 1980s, you're coming off, you know, pretty turbulent times from the 60s and the 70s. And like you said, right, you're, you're running track, you know, that's a, a little portion, a little contribution that you could give to, you know, supporting exactly. the black community um, in your aspect there. Um, and then kind of touching on what you said, I, I kind of have this idea of the 400 meters kind of in like multiple golden ages and what you were saying where you have the 60s, you had Lee Evans, you had Larry James, Vincent Matthews. Um, but then I think in your time, I feel like that was another golden age with, um, you know, there was yourself, there was, of course, Alonzo uh, Babers, there was Steve Lewis, Butch Reynolds, right? Michael Johnson after you. Um, what was it like during your time? where you had all these amazing 400 meter runners and you all are really like at you know the top of the world, right? You are the best of the best. What, what was it kind of like in that experience, in that environment? Well, number one, I didn't like them, you know? <laughs> uh, they, they're great guys, you know? Every one of them I beat, but most of them, every one of them destroyed me too. I think during that time in our sports, it was changing so much. So you have a guy that'll come around like a Steve Lewis or, or Danny Everett, or Butch Reynolds, uh, Michael Johnson. Michael Johnson was a little different. He lasted a little longer. Uh, he coming from Baylor, competing against him and beating him many times. And all of a sudden he become great, running against Bush Reynolds in the Olympic trials and destroying him. Lonzo Baber beat me in the Olympic. And after that, he's not a great athlete anymore. Uh, so during our time, it was a, a, a circle. I stayed in the circle. Uh, but I think the best one was uh, Michael Johnson. And so uh, I don't know. I look at those athletes different than I look at the ones from the past. And I, the ones that are now, you know, people are not like what I say that, but I don't have a lot of respect for the ones now because they're self-promoting and they run in great times, but they, they don't step on a consistent basis and step out every meet and then be very consistent with those times. Uh, we have guys that, you know, running almost 42, 43, 43 seconds that, you know, I'm a 400 meter runner. And so, and we question our sports so much. And so I, what happened in our sports is different than then. I wish they do more at blood tests and I wish the sports were cleaner. And so, but I still love the sports, but our days was a little different. And it's in the, back in the sixties and early eighties, that's track and field. What we got now is just different shoes, different tracks. It's still track, don't get me wrong, but it's so many modifications to the sports. Interesting. I'm, I I love some of the things, uh, really interesting things you're saying. One of the things you said, at least the first thing, right, you said you didn't like them, right? But you seem to have a lot of, you know, camaraderie, right? You you beat all of them. They beat you sometimes. Um, do you feel like you had kind of like a friendly rivalry or do you think like during the time it was more of an intense rivalry with the guys you were competing with? 
for me, I didn't get along with him. And not, not in telling Todd disliking him or anything, but we started to make money. And, you know, and, and some people can socialize with each other and get along. When I see these guys, we just say hi, you know, no dislike. But if I'm trying to make a check, you know, I don't need to know you that well. I, you know, you're an enemy. I'm trying to destroy you. After the race, I'm always going to shake your hand. I never have an excuse for you being me. Uh, you're the better athlete, but I always come prepared. Um, but now I don't, I'm, I'm still an individual to this day. I like to spend a lot of time along and focus on what I need to do and, and uh, be prepared. And do you think, so one of the things now is, um, you know, so a couple years back, we kind of had a, a little bit of like rivalries that came up with like, um, you have Noah Lyles and Christian Coleman, they had a little bit of a rivalry, um, you know, a little back and forth on Twitter. Um, but for the most part, track is seen as a pretty, you know, friendly sport where most people are pretty cordial. There's no like, it's not like football or basketball where you hear like these, you know, high, high, um, you know, high quality competitions or like, you know, back and forth between athletes. Do you feel like that kind of high quality, like back and forth and maybe the stronger rivalries, do you feel like those are more beneficial or do you like it where track is more of a friendly sport and people are more cordial with each other? Which um, do you prefer? I, I think that I don't like the word friendly. Well, you know, you compete. I, I like to respect each other, but, you know, I, I think that athletes going back and forth on social media, if they want to, you know, promote the sports in a good way, yeah, but then as individuals, we have to be very careful with that, you know, because we have uh, eight lanes on the track, you know, and on those days, you know, we're trying to sell the sport, but any lane can win, but most of the time it's four lanes that most likely are going to win the race. Uh, when you talk about those guys, I think Kristen Coleman is probably the only one that don't step up and won a championship. So Noah Lyle is probably the better athlete out of everybody, I think, right now. So it's no different than 84. You know, I thought I would win a gold medal, and, you know, and all of a sudden you got the bronze medal. So I think at the end of the day, what you win is do you talking. So you can say whatever you want to say, but it's going to be who have world records, who have gold medals. So if they want to build the sports up that way, more power to them. I, I wouldn't do it. Got it. Got it. Got it. That, that's really good insight. That's really good perspective. Um, one thing I also wanted to ask you, of course, you know, you did the Olympics um, in 84 and you were still very, very young, but then you came back to Georgia Tech in 1985. And I'm curious, like you said, right, the sport was just in like the 70s and 80s. That's when like money started to come into the sport and it became professional. Um, why did you choose to go back to Georgia Tech as opposed to maybe, you know, running for a club or professionally um, in 1985? You know, it's really hard to answer that, but I'm going to answer for the first time. You know, I, I believed in how I got there. I believe that that coach coached me and he was a great coach. Um, but, you know, sometime, you know, it was like staying home too long. And, and so I don't regret any decision I make in my life. But I think athletes need to do what's best for them. And sometimes we, we're nervous about relocating, moving, buying a different house. And sometimes fear can hold you back. And, and so I think that one of those things, you know, growing up in the South and this kid that grew up in the project was afraid of change. That's really, really important to hear. Um, and kind of building off that, when you do move in, uh, you know, when you do finally become a professional, you do uh, eventually, of course, leave Georgia Tech. 
Um, so one of the things that's really big now is uh, financial literacy and right and preparing athletes and preparing you know just people to become adults and navigate through the world. I'm curious if you received any type of support, whether that's in terms of financial literacy or um, you know career advice and you know different aspects like that before you eventually started uh, started as a professional and moved into you know kind of the you know the adult world. And then that answer is no. I think that you know. I'm sort of proud of myself. You know, I, I just give you something that really simple, you know, at 58, my credit score is 820 or higher. Uh, I don't go out, I don't drink, I don't smoke. Uh, I believe in healthcare. I believe people should have healthcare. I believe in, you know, keeping a car for 20 years. I, I bought my first house when I was 22. Um, and I think it's important that people stay within their means. You know, I think it's important that no matter how smart you are, you know, you can be someone that went to Harvard or someone that went to Georgia Tech or Georgia, and you can be even a white athlete that you don't realize that money don't last forever. And so for me, growing up poor, so it scared me to not to spend that much. And so I've been able to work for myself, you know, my whole life on track and training people and doing my business, doing speaking engagement keeping my life as simple as possible, always being afraid that anything can happen. So I think that people think about all these aging, you know, I was able to do a lot of my own contract. When I got a divorce, I was able to go to court by myself and do the case. You know, it's not that complicated. You know, I, I say it's not that complicated. I don't think it's that complicated. Yeah, I think a lot of the things you you note are super important, right? The, you know, being able to get your house, being able to have your car, being able to maintain those things, right? Living, uh, being financially, you know, stable as best as possible. Um, you know, we see a lot of times, again, in many, many of these sports, um, not so much in track and field, but, you know, basketball, football, where athletes are coming out of high school making so much money, and then maybe they don't handle their money as, um you know, handle their money properly and later on in life, they're not as uh, financially stable, but. It's tough for those kids. It's tough for even someone, it's so many sharks out there, so many bad people out there. You know, I, I would tell people the biggest thing to try to do is stay out of debt. You know, you know, if you got a credit card, you know, for poor people, the interest rate is high. For people with good credit and rich, the interest rate is low. So if you don't have money and you're in debt, you're going to stay broke. You know, if you can go to college and you can get a, a degree or you can go to college and it may not be the college you want to go to and it's free, go to that college. You know, so the biggest problem is name brand, what college people want to go to. So the biggest thing I would tell black athletes and mainly black athletes is no, don't worry about what you put on social media, what school you go into. You know, everybody worry about this is school I'm going to go to. This is school, stay out of debt. Just try to stay out of debt. That is such a good point. I think you're you're dropping some amazing knowledge that you know a lot of a lot of athletes, young black athletes, do look for. So that is some really great advice. Um, and I'm going to jump back to that, but I do want to uh, just touch upon your accolades during the indoors, uh, during the indoor season. Of course, you know, two-time world indoor gold medalist at 400. Many athletes choose to completely just skip the indoor season. Um, so I'm curious, like, why you chose to, I don't, I don't know if you made that a priority, but you chose to continue running indoors. And, of course, that paid off. I'm curious why you chose to do that. You know, I, I think that one of the things that track is track. You know, I, I know 
to me, indoors was so exciting to me because I can feel where they at. So indoors, you're right, you're closer, you can feel it's almost like you, you're being in a fight. You know, they right there. Outdoors, they can sort of get away from you. And so you can fall asleep a little bit and they can get away from you. But I also believe that, you know, for seven years, I didn't lose a race indoors. I also, for me, I think it's a time when the athletes are more clean. You know, some people may be cheating, so they may not run indoors. Or some people, you know, because I made just as much money indoors than outdoors. So the money is still there. That's just, that's my belief in why I ran, why I think I was so successful indoors. Most athletes would say, I just want to run outdoors. I didn't care indoors or outdoors. I prefer indoors because they were right there. You know, like being able to touch somebody and not let them get away. But um, I like indoors. It, it was very exciting to me. Nice. And do you, do you prefer, you prefer indoors to outdoors in terms of like, Oh yes, I do. I do. No, no doubt about it. Only because I can just feel you, you know, it's, it's like, it, it's almost just being right. If you let somebody get away from you and they right there, you have no excuse. If you let somebody get away from you outdoors. Guess what? You have no excuse either. So you have no excuse no matter what. But for me, I can just always feel them and I, they couldn't get away from me. I just felt like, you know, I can touch you. I was good. That That is, that's so cool. And yeah, so many athletes choose to just skip indoors. But I think, like you said, that kind of intimate feeling, that feeling like you're, I'm right there to you, right? Like, you're not going to get away from me. I can, I can grab you. So that is really nice. Um, and then kind of touching a, a little bit of what you said in terms of making money, right? You made as, just as much money indoors as you did outdoors. Um, during that time in the eighties, um, and of course the early nineties, right. Um, there were athletes like Flojo and Carl Lewis, um, that were getting, you know, tons and tons of spotlight, but do you, did you feel at the time that track and field as a whole was well represented and kind of covered by the media, uh, during that time? I, I do. We have a sports that is, it's like a circus, but a circus constantly has something going on. We have a sports where you can run a 60 and everybody's hype. You have somebody who's outdoors, you can run 100. Then you have the mile coming up. You know, they like the mile. Certain people like the mile. But when, it, you know, 3,200 or some come up or the 3,000, how are you going to sell the sports? So I, I do believe that the Flojo and the Carl Lewis and the great people that ran the miles and us like the little sprinkles on the donut that run the 400, we got good money. But, you know, the, the power come in the sprints. They come in the hundreds. And then when you start looking at the color of the white people, you know, they want to, they want to have their mile. And so, yeah, I think those athletes deserve that money because they represent the sport. That was, that was, that was the circus. That was the big part of it. Do you think now the track and field is well represented? I mean, that, that's like a pretty huge debate where it seems like the publicity of the sport and the recognition of the sport has kind of been decreasing over the past couple of decades. Um, where now, you know, a lot of casual people can't even name anyone outside of Usain Bolt um, in the sport. Um, so yeah, I don't know what your perspective is in terms of how track and field is represented now in our current age. Well, it's going to die because, you know, you have all these networks. And so when we was growing up, you had maybe seven, eight networks. And so now you have network that everybody don't get in their house. So you have all these networks. And so Track and field may be on a site that someone don't have. 70, I mean, 50% of the people don't have. When we grew up, you know, you turn on NBC, ESPN, CBS, that was it. You can catch track and field. 
now you got to go to US network or this network. So um, in this sports, we, we can't have that. It's too many networks. And so you're going to know, I don't need to know a lot of the track and field people, you know? So it's hard to catch the sports on TV on the right network. Yeah, that is, that's an amazing point. Um, and to kind of uh, jump back. So I'm curious in, was 1992 your final year or did you run after 1992? That was, that was it. You know, I, I think I should have stopped before then. One thing about me is that I can remember being in Europe and, you know, when you used to winning and you, you know, I give you an example, you may get 7,000 for a race or 9,000 for a race. And, you know, you run three races, you, you know, you're close to 27,000 or you close. And then all of a sudden you start to lose and they offer you 2,000 for a race. It's hard to ride. You know, it takes, you know, 10, 15 races, they make that money, man. And you just like, hell, you feel like a 400 is two miles then. So, you know, you, I think that a football athlete, a basketball athlete can hang around a little longer, play less minutes. But when you're done in track, you know, you, if you can accept losing, I don't think you were that great. So for me, as soon as I couldn't win no more, I, I couldn't do it. I'm I'm curious on that. Was that a a kind of motivating factor and a driving factor into like your day to day training and your uh, you know your your competitions? Like I need to make money, right? Like I need to survive. I'm only getting paid a certain amount, and if I don't compete well, they're not going to pay me as much. Was that kind of a driving factor as you went through your career? You know, at the beginning, it wasn't. You know, the first Olympic, it wasn't about money. After that, it became about money. But let me just explain something real clear. I don't care how much drive you have. I don't care how hard you work. If you don't have that God-given talent, you're not gonna win. I don't care, you know, it's only so many hours you can put in in track and field. It's not like hitting a golf ball. You can't go out there for five hours and run. You got about an hour and a half, twice a day, and then your body's breaking down. It's no different than lifting weights. You cannot lift the same part hard every day. So for me, I want to be smart how I train. And so if I go into a race and a guy running, I'm running 44.69, the guy running 43.9, do I think I'm gonna win? Yes, I do. But he go, he not, I'm not gonna run 43. So, but I'm gonna give it 100%. So at the end of my career, you know, I'm, I'm 28, 29, how I'm gonna beat somebody 18? I can beat them in one race, but I'm not gonna beat them in three races. How, how am I going to recover? So training harder is not the right thing. Training right is the right thing. Even for collegiate athletes, and that's why my high school team, four by four girls, been ranked number one in the nation with no girl on there that can win an individual race, but all four of them can run great times. That is really beautiful. So yeah, that, that not training harder, but training smarter, right? Training right. That's essential there. Um, and you kind of did segue a little bit with, you know, the coaching you do. Um, but since you've left the track, um, you've been involved in, you know, so many different ways. I'm curious um, if you could talk about some of the things that you, you know, you've done since you've retired and then what you're currently doing now as well. Yeah, you know, first I started off just doing on track. My company's called On Track. So doing professional athletes, NBA guys, NFL guys. And then I had a, three groups of young kids I used to train when I say young from age 13 to 18. And um, then my kids wanted me to coach their track team. So 
Antonetta, my daughter, she I went to coach her high school. They won the state championship with me coaching that for the first time in history. Then I went to my son's school at St. Pies and I coached the girls and the boys who won the state championship there. Uh, I've been able to get over 300 full scholarships for kids in coaching. Um, with my teams at North Springs, where I'm coaching that now, the girls been ranked number one in the nation three times in the uh, last six years. We hold a record in Georgia in the, uh, four by four for girls for 340 when we're at 45. It, it, so this sports is very simple. It's about numbers. And so what I try to teach the kids, if you can't run 100 this time or 300 this time, it's all about numbers. And so I love coaching. Uh, it's hard for me to coach now because of social media. You know, everybody, you know, every parent have an excuse for their kids. We live in a society where everybody have mental health problems and we grew up rough. And all these things are real. I'm not saying they're real, but they should be for the people that are having problems. So we have so many things in coaching high school girls and high school boys now where the athletes are just not tough. Like the music they listen to is not the music we listen to, the struggle, the, you know, the Marvin Gaye, what's going on, you know, it, they, they just solve. So I love my job, but it's very frustrating because I can come home and I can get home at six o'clock and I wake up at two o'clock thinking about 25 athletes or 30 athletes. That's how personal I take it. I can hear the passion that you have, right? Like the idea that you're, you're waking up thinking about the athletes and you're really, really passionate about seeing their success. And, you know, like you've noted, you've seen so much success uh, with the progress that they've made. Um, with that, I'm actually curious because um, in high school, track and field is, I don't know if it's the most, but it's one of the most participated sports in high school. Um, but there does seem to be a relatively big drop off once you get to college, um, you know, where you have athletes and they go into, they either don't participate in sports or they go into, of course, football or basketball, volleyball. Um, I'm curious if you, you know, have ideas on why that might be, whether that's motivation or interest or different things like that. Yeah. Uh... See, stuff like this is pretty simple to me. Maybe there's too many people running in high school and we have not, not enough respect for our sports. You know, we, we say, okay, we, we are non-cut sports. But in basketball, you can only play five on the floor at a, at a time. In football, you can only play 11 on the field. So we'll go to a track meet, you have 200 kids. And so that drop off where you may have 60 on one team or 50 on one team, and yes, may keep people out of trouble. So let's keep it for that reason. But also when you get to college, it doesn't make any money. You know, we use Title IX for females to get, you know, to help them out. Basketball and football pay for track. No track program, no matter how good it is, is making any money. You go to a track meet in college and maybe 500 people there. So, you know, we have the... I think the, the greatest sports in all of them, out of all the sports, it's as natural, it's real, it's competitive, but we're not slamming anybody to the ground. So once we go to the next level, it's nowhere to go. And then who's going to keep doing it? You cannot win if you're working eight hours a day and somebody else have a full, I mean, a full sponsor and you know they get to go home and get their massage and rest. And so it got to dial. It's just going to have those certain amount of athletes making money, the top two in the 400 in the world, uh, the top seven in the 100. 
and then you have the NFL, <laughs> all those guys, and only 2% of all college athletes make it to the NFL, the NBA, and you then you think about track. I just go on numbers. I, I, this is what our sport says. Yeah, that's such a good point. And that, that like, um, there's many, many professional athletes now, or I guess, quote unquote, professional, but not only are they not sponsored, but then, like you said, they have full time jobs, but they're still competing, you know, trying to make it to the Olympics to the World Championships. Um, but you know, the, the money just doesn't seem to be there. Um, I'm curious if there's if there's anything you would change about how track and field is now so whether that be on the ncaa or whether that be on the professional level right with um you know with nike and adidas you know giving contracts to to professional athletes um even like the viewership like are there any like things you would like to see changed in terms of how the sport of track and field is now well maybe five years ago i wouldn't say this there's nothing you can change other than if track and field would have started out majority white in the United States, and there's no different than volleyball or anything else, those sports and softball and softball be on TV more than track. So if we 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 play in the sport, and you say, well, what about the NFL? It's mostly back. What about the NBA? That show that you know that's something that can sell itself. For us to be important in track and field in the United States, it has to be sponsored by more things in order. Senate, Congress, athletes have to get money for gold medals and stuff like that. Other than that, this sports won't make it be through, once again, maybe 5% of athletes get endorsement. So if you're only getting 5% getting endorsement, you, it's nothing else you can do other than saying fund the sports. And then I guess they'll say, well, it's welfare. It's not welfare, it's entertainment. So we, we're running a, a sports that is black with white athletes that are coming along, which is very good. The more white sprinters come, hell, the better it is. So the people shouldn't be getting upset. They should be clapping because then there'd be more sponsorship. They'll put it on TV. Uh, and so I just think it had to be more great white sprinters. More money can come through TV than money can filter down that way, maybe. But just being a sports, the way it is now, it's not very much you can do. We have watched this happen now throughout the 80s where we make more money because why? Because the Olympics may be in the United States. And so then everybody want to put on a flag and wave it and throw you out there. And then once it's gone, you're gone. So the flag only means something, I guess, if you're serving in a war or running for the Olympics. And after that, it means nothing. That's some, yeah, really, really good, good thoughts there. Um, and I want to uh, kind of close out just with a couple couple questions to end off. Um, and bouncing off a little bit of what the current times, do you have any current athlete that you would say is like your favorite athlete that you you know still keep an eye out for, or still love to watch, um, you know, currently? You know, I like Alice Felix. I, you know, I, I have a lot of respect for her. Um, that's it. You know, listen, we, we can't just... To, to be great in this world, you have to make a difference. You know, when you get an opportunity to be a great, what do you do to make a difference? Who life are you changing? And I tell my athletes all the time, do something for someone every day. And so I, I think she gave females a great opportunity. You know, females for so many years, no matter what color they are, have been a disadvantage in this world. And of course, black people hardly we, we understand that. 
but females, you know, they give birth and black females, they go out and they go into a job and they never get the job they deserve. And so to watch her go through what she do and fight against Mikey, and I have a lot of respect that, but the rest of them, I don't know. I don't dislike them. But when you start telling me somebody that's doing something for society, that's what I care about. We, as athletes and, and people that get a chance to be on TV and do things, we, we don't have to be a role model. I'm not asking anybody to be a role model. Just, just do something for someone. Yeah, that's a that's a great point. Of course, with yeah, Allison Felix has been through so much and has been so impactful. She actually um, just yesterday she announced this would be her last year running before she retires. Um, but yeah, I, I love what you said. Right, of course we're running on the track, but then also what is some of the what other impact are you know athletes able to make? And I I think a lot of the young athletes now you see athletes like Noah Lyles, you see some other athletes who are really you know speaking up about uh, some of the some of the ways that you know, they can make an impact through running, um, you know, into the community, into society um, to really build up, um, you know, different people as well. I think Noah Lyle watching a couple of his interviews, you know, with his brother and his mom, those are great stories, you know, and I, I like those stories, you know, and I think his story was one that I really enjoyed. But, you know, during Olympic times, we hear about people staying in cars and what this happened, how they made it. It's so many stories. I like good stories. I like good stories. You know, you know, um, I don't need nobody to feel sorry for me. I you know I grew up, I had a great life. Where I grew up, it was rough. I didn't know it was rough. I didn't know it was rough. I thought things were great. Um, you know, life, when I say life is tough, but life is good. It is really good. And, and so, I want to hear some good stories. And, and yes, it's going to be some struggle. I want to hear a track athlete say, you know, man, it's wonderful to run track. Who can I help? Uh, I stayed in the car, but man, that car was comfortable. Hell, let's go get, you know, I want to hear some good stories. Even if it sounds bad, I want to hear some good stories. My sister was murdered. Um, and I took out her two kids and I adopted them. And then so when my sister was murdered, I think about, all the wonderful times I had with my sister. Do I get emotional about it? But it's a good emotions. You know, we, we can't turn back the clock. You just make the best out of things. That is, yeah, that's really, really powerful. And I, I love it, right? Honing in on those stories. There's so many different stories in track and field. There's so many different athletes across so many events. Honing in on those stories and really highlighting them is super, super important. So definitely resonate with that. Um, So just a, a two more questions to end off and a little bit different if you had the chance to compete in you know let's say the upcoming olympics right and imagine you're in your prime imagine you're healthy no injuries nothing like that um but you can't compete in your primary event so of course you were a 400 meter runner right so imagine you can't compete in that is there another event that you would choose to have competed in and why i may be i may be crazy but the 800 oh yeah yeah because you know th those guys are tough and I think I'm tough. Those guys are tough. I mean, hell, you go around that one time, you got to go one more time. And they, they not, they're not jogging now. And I, you know, Mark Everett is a friend of mine. And these, these guys were tough. Johnny Gray, you know, being in Seoul career with Johnny Gray. And, you know, them guys are tough. These hundred guys, 
200 guys, maybe 400 guys. Hell, it's just one lap all out. Hell, it's hard, but the 800 is scary. <laughs> Do you think if you if you hopped into the 800 in your prime, you would have been? I'd be great. Yeah. I'd be great. I'd probably, I'd probably be better at the eight than, you know, you remember speed. You can always go up, but you can't come down. You know, I, I thought I could run the 100 and Sam Grady, he was from Atlanta, you know, he got the silver medal in 84 and the 100. And he whooped up on me two or three times a hell. They got a, it's time to go up. So I know if I ran the 800, if I ran the 400, I'll be just as good as I was in the 400, maybe better. Maybe better. Nice. That That's amazing. You don't hear too many 400 meter runners who are like, all right, I think I could do the eight. So that's really dope to hear. That's really cool. You know why you don't hear that? Look what they do now. They go down. True. Yeah, true. Because they, 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 and they like, oh man, I don't want no part of this 400. They go down and they, they should, it probably should have never went up. See, it's hard to go down. If you, if you got all that speed and you work hard, no one should beat you in that 400. If you if you do enough speed endurance with the speed, see the four hundred is only two percent uh, aerobic. So you you can do all the miles you want to, it ain't gonna help you. It's about speed and speed endurance. So you got all that speed, you shouldn't lose. Very true. That that's I I really it's it's crazy. Yeah, a lot of four hundred athletes they drop down. Right, you see four hundred athletes dropping down to the two hundred. Right, as opposed to four eight runners, um, very because they're not tough. You know, we live in a society, man. They get a little pain here, they lose them something like, Hey, what, what's next? What, what could I have? I, I'm gonna go down. They, 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 they saw you can tell them I said, Hell, I don't care. <laughs> they, they, I wouldn't go down. Noah Law is probably one of the greatest athletes I've seen. I mean, he should win the 400 with his eye closed. <laughs> you think he could win the, the 400? Like, you think he'd be one of the best 400 meter runners? Oh my gosh, yes. Nice. That that's some that's some good words. I know he's he gets a lot of like um, people ask him about running a four by four or something like that. So maybe that might be something he has to jump into. Oh, he he can run a four by four now. He can split 44 one with his eye. He'd die hell, but he'll be okay. <laughs> nice nice I, I i love to hear that um so just to end off a little bit different outside the track um but let's say you're on a long flight maybe you're going to you know compete on a circuit in europe um if you could pick a favorite movie that you you know you'd love to watch um and then maybe a favorite genre or an artist of music that you'd love to listen to uh it'd be marvin Gaye and it'd be jerry Maguire. show me the money Nice. <laughs> I, I like I like movies with little things in that just stick with me. And other than that, maybe the mask, you know, all those, you know. I just like simple. I like I like to compete to old songs. I used to listen to Luther, Superstar before every one of my races that it's all right, it's all right. I'm an emotional runner. I don't like all that beat in my head. I like to think where I come from. Um Life is not easy, but life is great. I'm an emotional runner. Nice. Yeah, I, I love that quote. Just life is not easy, but life is great. That is, that's really powerful. So 
Wonderful. Well, Antonio, I really appreciate you joining. I really appreciate all the insight you gave. You you dropped some amazing gems for you know a lot of you know athletes who are you know going through the sport right now, um, as well as for you know changes and things like that um, incur occurring in the sport. Um, you know that can make some changes. So, really appreciate you joining. Thanks so much for you know talking about your history. And um, yeah, we hope to hear from you again soon. I really enjoyed it. Thank you.